Good morning, friends. It is great to be here with you this morning to open God's Word. My name is Lawrence, and I am honored to be one of the elders here at Christ Church Baptist Church, and I am thrilled that you have chosen to spend time with us today. My prayer for you is that as we open God's Word, you would be encouraged, uplifted, and strengthened as being part of our church family this morning. Now, I know that for some of our church family, these are really difficult days. Please know that you are loved, that we care for you, and if there's anything we can do, please keep us as a church informed. We want to be praying for you in these days. Well, we're in the middle of a series called More Than a Sunday School Story, and I wonder what your memories of Sunday school are. What was it like? What did you get up to? Did you even go to Sunday school when you were a child? Maybe you've come to church life and come to faith as an adult, so you might have unfortunately missed out on those years of children's and youth ministry. Well, Sunday school, children's ministry, youth ministry, it's important for those who are privileged to share in it, but it is vital for those young people who connect with it. It's a great opportunity of discipleship and evangelism. So as my side point today, please be praying for Jackie and her team as they are trying to pursue ministry with young people in an ever-changing landscape. Pray for wisdom, pray for strengthening of relationships, and pray for the courage to share the good news of Jesus. And please, too, be praying for our young people. And if you see them when you're out, please do encourage them. Well, my memories of Sunday school are of sitting on Flotex carpets. Do you remember that stuff from the 80s that used to make your fingers go funny? And if you were playing a game and you fell over, you'd get horrendous carpet burns. I remember drinking juice and eating rich tea biscuits. I remember singing action songs and doing craft-based Bible activities. And as my thoughts goes to those activities, those Sunday school stories... Maybe your thoughts go there too. And these are the stories that really help us to paint a picture of the Bible narrative, the Bible's big story. And as we take all these little stories, we stack them together and they become a foundation on which we can find our place in that story. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, I don't know. Grab some juice and a rich tea biscuit and let's dive right in. A big thank you to the Allen family who brilliantly uh, brought the story to us. The story is from Genesis 11, and though it is ancient and though it is part of our origin narrative, it is relevant and it's part of our ongoing narrative. It's a story for then, but it's also a story for now. These stories matter because they tell us who God is and who we are. So what could the Tower of Babel possibly mean for us today? When I think about how I was taught it in Sunday school, I was told it was how God created languages. And to some extent, that may be true. But I think this story has perhaps something profound to say to us this morning, at this time in our lives, about our relationship with ourselves, with others, and ultimately our relationship with God. But to get to some of that stuff, we need to understand why this story is where it is in the Bible. Because there's a very deliberate shape to the book of Genesis. 
And Genesis quite literally means beginning. And the book of Genesis is split into two distinct sections. The first section, chapters 1 to 11, are made up of fast-paced, moving snapshots that set up the scene for the story ahead. It's about God and this world that he's created. And then the second section, chapters 12 to 50, is about God and one man, Abraham, and what happens with his family. So the book is starting with this wide lens, which is setting up the story. And then it zooms in very deliberately to look at Abraham and a promise that God makes with him to rescue humanity and to bless a rebellious world all through Abraham's family. So I guess the question is, why was that promise needed? Well, let's go back to the Genesis and look at these fast-paced chapters Uh, to help us to understand about the Tower of Babel. So in the beginning, we know this story, there was chaos, darkness, and disorder. And God said, let there be light. And he created order. Land, water, trees, plants, fish, birds, animals, and it was good. And God created humanity, and it was really good. And they're in a garden, and it's beautiful. It's lush, it's overflowing and reverberating with life. And humans, well, they've got a job to do. They had responsibilities. And after all, they were made in God's image. Quite literally, humans were a reflection of his character. They were representatives of his rule and reign in the garden. They had a job to harness the creation's potential. And God blessed them, didn't he? In Genesis 1:28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over. And then God lists his creation. In Genesis 2 and 3 of these fast-paced stories, we get the story about man and woman and how God empowered them with free will, with choice and autonomy. On one hand, the choice to trust God and his definition of good and evil. And on the other side, on the other hand, to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to make a decision about what those concepts mean for themselves. This is the moment in our story where humanity rebels, turning its back on the literal source of life, which means one alternative. Do you remember the detail of that story that the snake arrives on the scene, doesn't he? And he says, eat this fruit, you'll be fine. You won't possibly die. It'll make you like God. How enticing to be like God. The sad irony was that humans were already made in God's image. They were already like him. But the snake's offer seeming just too good to be true. The man and the woman exert their autonomy and end up living in opposition to God. The wider consequence is is that everything starts to spiral out of control. The relationship between the man and woman is broken. They experience shame. They lose their intimacy with God. They try and hide. They put in blame on each other. No one wants to take responsibility. And then an incredible act of grace in Genesis 3.15, we see God announce a promise, a promise that points to the victory that Christ will have over the snake's rebellion, that evil will ultimately be defeated. And even though there is this act of grace, there is sadly this need to live with the consequences of that sin. That while God has a rescue plan, he cannot mitigate their actions and remove their autonomy. 
So life is going to get a lot more difficult for them because of the choices that they've made. Can things get any worse? Well, just like we heard last week in Genesis 4, a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. And even though God reached out to Cain in compassion, he chose to kill Abel. And violence steps up onto the world stage. Can it get any worse? Well, in the second part of Genesis 4, a man called Lamech appears and He's on the scene and he's got two wives. That's not the original intention of creation. And he's boasting that he's much more vengeful and violent than Cain ever was, claiming to proudly be the master of his own destiny. I mean, how low do things need to get? Surely it can't get much worse. Well, in chapter 6, we get this odd story about a group of people who were acquiring as many wives as they wanted now. And there's a story about these Nephilim who were described as big, strong warriors of old who, in God's eyes, were sinful and ripe for judgment. It paints a picture that humans are filling God's beautiful world with man-made kingdoms of violence and corruption. And in Genesis 6, verse 6, with an utterly broken heart, God is devastated at what has become of his world. So he seeks to protect it and to wash the world clean. So he finds a man by the name of Noah to help and to preserve creation. And we know that story, don't we? The story of Noah and the ark. And in Genesis 9, after God has literally washed the world clean with a great flood, God again blesses humans and says to Noah, be fruitful and increase in number. It's an echo back to the garden, back to the original intention. It's almost like he's pressing reset. Surely it's okay now. It's not going to get much worse. Well, if you read a little further on in the same chapter, you find Noah, our hero figure, has now got drunk. And he's in a vineyard, he's in a tent with no clothes on, and something shameful happens. This Bible story is familiar in the Bible, isn't it? We know how this has gone before. Noah, our new Adam figure in the story, is like the first. He's in a garden, naked and ashamed. And so it starts to spiral out of control again. And it is here, at the utter bottom of this spiral of pain and rebellion, of thinking that humanity can do it on its own without God, that we find the Tower of Babel. This tower is the embodiment of rebellion and the sinfulness of humanity. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to Genesis 11, and we'll point some things out as we go along. So verse 1 then. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3 when God tells Adam and Eve to leave the garden? He drove them out and he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim to guard the way. It's almost as humanity keeps on moving east. And it may be literal, but I think figuratively... It hints that humanity has continued to move east, further and further and further away from God's original intention, his original design for the garden. And I think it's saying that at the bottom of this spiral, humanity could not be further from God if it tried. Verse 3 says, uh, They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stones and tar for mortar. 
This is a note that tells us that humanity has advanced. It has had its own technological, industrial, and scientific revolutions. Humanity now has bricks made instead of stones, and they have mortar to stick them together. Their building materials are much stronger, sturdier, and more powerful. They can be stacked higher, and they can create buildings of different complex designs and sizes. Look at what humanity can accomplish without God, is the attitude of the people. Does that sound familiar? Let's look at verse 4. They then said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It's an interesting project, isn't it? It's so grandiose that they talk amongst themselves excitedly as if it were their ultimate achievement. It will reach into the heavens. We'll make a name for ourselves. And yet... At the same time, they betray their own insecurity as they crowd together, preserving their identity. It's almost as if they're saying, look how great we are, but let's stick together. There's safety in numbers, right? And then as we come to verse 5, the writer of this passage uses a really clever writing tool, and it's almost like he's underlining this verse and going over it with a highlighter. And it's this, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. The irony is, is that as people are trying to reach up in their pride and arrogance to reach into the heavens, God, with no hint of effort, reaches down to humanity with interest and concern to see how it's doing. And God is not just interested in the tower, the focus of the people, But in the whole city, their whole way of life comes under God's inspection. One action by the people is prideful, and the other action by God is humble. We read on in verse 6. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language uh, of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Can you see the similarity? Humanity is being sent out again, just like from the garden, but now they're being sent out from their city. The stories in this first section of Genesis are making a point. The point is that God keeps giving people a chance with his world, and people keep making mistakes. They keep getting it wrong. They keep being proud and wanting to do life their own way. And when they do, it seems to end in them being further and further away from the original idea. Pretty bleak, isn't it? But... And this is a really important but. We know that God has a plan. We saw it in Genesis 3. God is going to rescue humanity by defeating evil at its source. Just compare the language of Genesis 3.15 with Romans 16 verse 20. Notice the similarity as Paul writes this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The message paraphrase puts it this way. Stay alert. And before you know it, the God of peace will come down on Satan with both feet, stomping him into the dirt. Paints quite a picture, doesn't it? 
We are privileged to live at this point in the Bible narrative, the Bible story, and we can hold on to that promise. And I guess, in a way, that sets us up nicely for Andy's preach next week as he looks at what happens next in the rescue story. But it's pretty clear from these chapters in Genesis that humanity needs a rescue and a rescuer. So what can we take away for ourselves today? I think it's okay to look around at this beautiful world and to see the brokenness that is perhaps all around us. That humanity's attempts to go it alone have contributed to a downward spiral. And we, like the people at Babel, have also had our revolutions, our scientific innovations, our technological advances. And these are good things, but they can be used to make a name for ourselves so we can reach into the heavens. And to that extent, they can sometimes mask the realities of our own insecurities, just like the people of Babel who spoke amongst themselves looking for reassurance. I mean, I don't want to shoot fish in a barrel, but social media platforms thrive on people hiding their real selves behind filtered pictures, curated highlights, and self-promotions. Social media is good, but it can be used in a way that is not. The Tower of Babel is really a story about pride and how it can take root in us and cause us to rebel. And it reminds us that without any effort, God sees what we're doing. And there's that famous verse, isn't there? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And whenever I hear that verse from 1 Samuel 16, I often hear in my mind, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Sin happens in the full sight of God. Nothing we do is hidden. And the truth about sin, as demonstrated throughout this section of Genesis, but also in this story about Babel, is that sin breaks relationships. The people are scattered. Just think of a time in the past, or maybe even a time now, where someone has sinned against you, or maybe you've sinned against someone. What was the outcome? Was it a broken relationship characterized by pain? I think it probably was. And pain sucks. Can you see why God wanted to keep us in the garden? Can you see why at every turn he's trying to head off brokenness and to stop the pain? My dear friends, when I was putting this sermon together, I had no idea where it was going to go. I wanted to bring you a bright and cheerful message. But God has put this on my heart. And I think it might be for, well, it's for me, but maybe for all of us in the time that we're facing In a time when the church is scattered, God wants to enter the broken spaces of our lives. And just like in the Genesis, in the beginning, he wants to bring order out of chaos. He wants to shine light into the darkness. He wants your being to be beautiful, lush, overflowing, reverberating with life. He created you for that. And I want to be really clear that your life is so meant to overflow with life that it acts as a beacon for others. Let your light shine so people will glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. That's how it's meant to be. We're not meant to do it any other way. Babel teaches us that. So now let me speak with a pastor's heart. Some of us, 
maybe all of us, are all too aware of the broken relationships in our own lives. Maybe with family members or with friends. And I want to say gently that we really need to forgive one another, just as the Lord forgave us. You see, the act of forgiveness enables us to love and to let go. But remember these 11 chapters. They also remind us that there may be consequences that we have to live with, things that we mustn't forget. But forgiveness is about freedom. And so, you know, holding on to our own pain, holding on to our own sin and brokenness is like building a tower. It's about taking everything we think we know, turning it into bricks and sticking them together and saying, I'm fine on my own. And I want to say this as gently as I can, that that is a position of pride. And this story really warns against it. Babel shows us that the antidote for pride is humility. And the Apostle Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5. He quotes scripture and then he uh, comments on it. He says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves then under God's mighty hand so that he may lift you up in due time. My friends, don't do Babel, do humble. Humble yourself so that God may lift you up. You don't need a tower. So what might that look like for you? Well, I don't know. It might mean um, some things like coming before the Lord with a mentor or a trusted friend and doing like a, a Psalm 139, search me, O God, and see if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me into life. Or it might mean seeking reconciliation under God where there is sin between you and someone else, regardless of who started it. Matthew 5 teaches us that. It could even be just a phone call during this pandemic to say sorry to someone that you can't get to. It might mean a good cry in the presence of the Lord as he gently ministers to you by his Holy Spirit, as he puts the broken things in your life back together. It might mean that you need to acknowledge for the first time that you do in fact need a rescuer. Remember, just like that verse that is underlined and highlighted in the story of Babel, the Lord came down, that's what Jesus did. Luke 19 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That sounds like a rescue to me. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Second Philippians, or Philippians 2. He says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself, and he was lifted onto a cross to take on the weight of humanity, humanity's rebellion, its sin and pride, brokenness and pain, so that we could have life in all of its fullness. This Sunday school story, the Tower of Babel, reminds us that we've all moved so far east away from the original garden idea, that things really did get that bad, and that we do need a rescuer, and that rescuer is called Jesus, whose plan was death on a cross and resurrection life, which he invites you to be a part of. And just like those chapters set up the story for the rest of the Bible, they also set up the story for the rest of your story. 
as Jesus reaches out to you and invites you to step into his fullness of life. May that be your experience. And if it's not, please do get in touch with us here at CBC because we would love to answer your questions. We'd love to help you work through what it means for you. And we'd love to be praying with you. And so as I close, my dear sisters and brothers, here is an encouragement. May you do humble, not Babel. Don't build bricks out of brokenness, but instead let Jesus work out his rescue plan. Let him build into your life. And as he does, may you flourish so that everything you know, everything you do, everything you are is beautiful, lush, overflowing and reverberating with life. Life in all its fullness. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May you know his grace and peace. Amen.